You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, we have Stephen Huttert, who is president and CEO of McConnell Foundation. Uh, McConnell is one of Canada's largest uh, private foundations. And importantly, Stephen was a member of the Government of Canada's Social Innovation and Social Finance Strategy Co-Creation Steering Group. It's a mouthful, but we're going to unpack that a little bit of what that is and why it's important. But uh, at the high level, why it's really relevant is because it was very instrumental in convincing the federal government to commit uh, $800 million uh, for a new social finance fund. And we're going to hopefully get into as, as much detail as we can. I think there's not tons to be shared at this point, but we've got some detail to hopefully unpack a little bit. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so very much, David. Uh, great to be here with you and uh, a wonderful opportunity to talk to your listeners about the emerging space around the social finance fund and what we think are some pretty important implications and opportunities that go with that to help Canada and communities to move forward in the face of some pretty serious challenges and some pretty big opportunities, we would say as well, to whether we're talking about the transition to a low carbon economy or the challenges of an aging society and the uh, changing nature of work. There's a lot that we want to be able to work on and do, but the additional asset of a social finance fund to bring capital to bear on some of these challenges is a very exciting opportunity. Yeah, it sounds like it. Maybe let's just start a little bit at a high level. Um, we can dig into some of the details as we go, but just McConnell Foundation, can you give sort of the quick intro to, you know, who are you guys and what your mission is and how you go about it? Sure. We're the second oldest private foundation in Canada, created in 1937. Our founder was a very wealthy immigrant to this country from uh, Ireland. He was actually born here, but his parents immigrated. You know, he built a sizable commercial empire, but in the 1930s, he was motivated to create a a foundation to address what he saw as some of the most pressing needs of those days. That was, after all, the Depression. And being based in Montreal, he was concerned to support missions for the poor, the YMCA, boys and girls clubs. And over the course of his lifetime, he was an anonymous philanthropist. He owned the Montreal Star newspaper, but he never allowed his philanthropy to be mentioned, but a very generous man, and he endowed the foundation. Uh, Today, we work nationally in Canada. We've extended well beyond Montreal. And our focus is, although we're still a a family foundation, a private foundation, on Canada as a whole, and our efforts to and our ability to adapt to the sustainability challenge of our era, to become a more inclusive society. We're already a very inclusive society. We want to keep uh, that capacity strong and growing. We think a lot about and we focus on Indigenous reconciliation and the need to address that issue as as something that philanthropy didn't really pay much attention to until recently. And broadly, we're very interested in these questions of social innovation and social finance. How do we bring all of society's resources and creativity to addressing the systemic changes that we have to now address in order to navigate you know, the next decade. That's great. Thank you very much for that intro. Um, I have a lot of questions. So my challenge will be to just figure out a, a logical flow for this conversation. 
Off the bat, I mean, it does seem to me a couple things really stick out to me other than the size of, of McConnell. Um, there's some really wonderful people who have done a lot of work, and I hadn't really realized until I started to do the kind of research for the podcast around really building the capacity and encouraging others to make best use of their assets. And so whether that's sort of capacity building for other foundations and other investors to transition to impact investing, um, sitting on the obviously global steering committee. I'm going to misremember the name of the global group that Sir Ronald Cohen chairs. Uh, I know you've had a couple members of your team, Erica, and I think a couple others, yeah, GSG. And so it just seems like you're very, very active. You and the, the folks there are very active in you know, not just sort of directing McConnell's assets, but really trying to be a force for good beyond just the financial capital you wield? Well, one thing that uh, one foundation can't achieve very much on its own, it's on our partners, all the way from the community level to prison government, other foundations, other financial institutions. Uh, the nature of our, our challenges these days is such that no one sector can propose to resolve them on its own. So we do partner extensively. And yes, through the social innovation generation, both us with Mars, University of Waterloo, and the Plan Institute in Vancouver, and for social finance. So we've been working at this for over a decade, and you know we're not the only ones in this space. There's there's lots of others now, but it's been rewarding to see the language and the frameworks of social innovation and social finance, they are wedded. I mean, we're, we're basically, you know, looking at a situation where if we want to make progress on the kinds of challenges we face, we have to make sure that resources flow towards those people and uh, those problems where the solutions can be supported and scaled. Yeah, what I found very interesting as I've kind of dug my, gotten deep, more and more involved in this space is the idea of, I think what you guys sort of call solutions finance, it seems to me that, that, you know, there's, I think, a number of interchangeable terms that sometimes get thrown around, but social finance, um, broadly speaking, is sort of this recognition that, I'm curious for your views on this, that even just financial capital is not these sort of discrete buckets of, oh, well, here's impact investment capital, and here's philanthropic capital, that can sort of be a continuum. And that if you view your capital holistically, rather than as these sort of discrete buckets that you sort of just figure out the best allocation of that capital, the best structure to deliver that capital in a way that is most conducive. So as, a, as an example, rec the recognition that all investments have impact, the only question is, is it sort of positive or negative and how are you directing it? And that you get these blending of other areas, right, where like you might have traditional grants versus, you know, investment. And then you've got sort of the middle ground where it may be sort of concessionary capital where you're giving up some return for greater impact or potentially no return. So you've got these sort of blending of these areas that were seen as discrete. And I found that, that really interesting um, because it seems to just open up a whole lot of new possibilities. Well, that's right, David. I think there's, there's a whole group of foundations and agencies that use grants to support social change. And ultimately, while that's all beneficial and, and we don't want to criticize people who donate to charities, far from it. But if we want to have uh, the kind of impact that we need, we have to think about, you know, as a foundation, we're obliged to spend by law 3.5% of our endowment on charitable activities. But there's nothing that's being said about the 96.5% of the endowment that remains, in most cases, invested in the stock market. While that does some good, there's no doubt, uh, we can be more intentional 
profiling those investments into areas that reflect our philanthropic purpose. I speak on behalf of all foundations here or endowment holders. We could talk about university endowments. And, you know, we respect the work that's being done to uh, people who are talking about divesting from the fossil fuel industry. There's at least a discussion about that, about what's the social purpose or the impact of an endowment. But I think the real, you know, what can be gained here is the application or the alignment of capital investing with philanthropic purpose. I mean, that to us looks like a huge opportunity. And frankly, we're surprised that more people aren't doing more of it. I mean, it is growing in terms of a market and set of practices. We started about 10 years ago with our first impact investment. Uh, It happened to be with um, a, we did a couple of things, uh, helped uh, the Quest University project get off the ground with some bridge financing. And it was right, happened to be right around 2008 during the financial crash. And we were delighted when our capital was, our $10 million loan was repaid in full with interest. In fact, in that year, it was one of our most, our best performing investments in the entire endowment of 500 million or so at the time. So a point to make about impact investing is it's not necessarily um, especially risky. You can choose your risk tolerance and design an impact portfolio around that. You can blend it. And the other thing is the federal government has given us a really, uh, I think, perhaps not as well understood or used instrument called the program-related investment. So we can make investments in line with our granting priorities, where if we lose money on the investment, we can count that loss as contributing to our granting disbursement quota. So that really does take the pressure off uh, an endowment manager at a foundation to say, well, okay, so if we do lose, we'll count it as a grant. So as I say, it's a growing field, but I think we're really looking to see it grow further and faster, which is why the Federal Social Finance Fund is such an important uh, commitment. Yeah, it's funny, you touched on it earlier and just at the end there, but this idea that it, you know, as soon as you start to talk about it, it really does feel just sort of obvious. (laughs) Um, Oh, right, this is a no-brainer. Why would we not use all of the capital in the most efficient way to get the most leverage that we can? And it is sort of a once you're in that mindset, it's hard to see how others don't sort of immediately just get it and immediately well, adopt it. <laughs> what organization would use 3.5% of its assets in That's pursuit right. of its purpose and leave the others, leave all right. of it? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, it's, exactly. It's funny. I was, I think it was uh, Annette Aquin at Hamilton Community Foundation who was telling the story about how she, I think she was talking to a group of, I don't know if it was university or, or high school students about sort of social finance and sort of these new tools and how we're more effectively using assets and considering the impact of those assets. And you feel pretty good about that. I think collectively, we all, when we talk about this stuff, feel pretty good about it and how how really kind of brilliant this all is. And somebody had asked, one of the students had raised their hand at the end of the um, presentation and said, like, so what were you doing before? And she's like, well, yeah, good question. I mean, it seems obvious, but I promise you, it hasn't been obvious for decades. Well, and I think this reflects the fact that our understanding of charity is evolving. So the federal government has, through the Social Innovation and Social Finance Task Force, agreed that we will be able to work differently with CRA, with the tax regulator who oversees uh, the regulation of the charitable sector. Um, We do think that there's a modernization is, is overdue. And this ability to deploy capital in innovative ways is an important part of that. 
But there's this notion that charity was sort of the place to look after the poor or to at least to alleviate poverty, not to prevent it, but to alleviate it, uh, to support religion. I mean, there's the, the standard charitable objects are still there and still govern much of the activity of our sector. We've recently seen a discussion emerge from the government about making public interest journalism charitable. It wasn't before, but now that we're losing the capacity to monitor and investigate and report on things happening in our own country, it's like, well, we need help here. But the point to make about the charitable sector is that the grants economy that is attached to the community sector is insufficient to address the scale of the problems we're dealing with. We've got a lot of creativity in communities, a lot of goodwill, and a lot of potential to turn our problems into opportunities for inclusive growth. But we need capital to come into that space to say, great, granting has established a set of relationships, surfaced some new and better approaches, or identified where the real needs are. Let's bring capital into this space and, and work to create better outcomes for people, communities, and around key issues. So it is a transformation of some sort that's going on here that affects the charitable sector, affects the social enterprise sector, and implies a different relationship between the public sector, philanthropy, and charity. So as we gear up to try to reach the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, we need everything we can put our hands on to affect this kind of change on these multiple scales. And social finance is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So we touched on this idea about, you know, it seemed once you're sort of get your head around this, it sort of seems obvious. And why isn't everybody doing it? Um, you know, you talked a little bit about, I'm sure you glossed over what was a much more um, maybe difficult process, but that transition from McConnell from not having made any impact investments, you were an early impact investor, and how you get sort of get that buy-in, uh, institutional buy-in from the board and from just in the DNA of the, the organization. Do you have sort of feedback advice you'd give to, I know a lot of foundations are wrestling with this right now, right? Even those who have members who have some interest in it, getting buy-in and, and how do you sort of get into that space when you're coming from a place where you haven't done it yet? Do you have sort of feedback advice? I think that'd be a valuable. Sure. Well, maybe I can tell a story of, apart from the university case, which is a bit of an anomaly, but our first investment into an impact fund, it was started by Joel Solomon and Carol Newell at the Renewal Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they basically were saying, look, if you're investing in, in the marketplace, in companies, um, why not invest in some companies that have been predetermined, uh, carefully evaluated to be addressing the kinds of issues that you're addressing, that you're dealing with with your grant making? So environmental technologies, sustainable food enterprises. Let's grow some companies together with capital investments to grow that part of the marketplace and focus both Canada and the U.S. And so it took leadership from the board, and one board member in particular who made, this, uh, made us all aware of it and made sure that we looked at it carefully. We met the people involved. And these are some of the best people you'd ever want to meet are the people who are growing companies that address social and environmental challenges. They know they have to be good on all the other metrics in order to focus on the blended value proposition that they're making. Michael Porter made this put this forward 25 years ago, the Porter hypothesis that you know, environmental companies did better than those that didn't have an environmental bottom line because they were rigorous. 
about making sure that everything else was in place and working well in order to focus on this mission. Today, Larry Fink has brought the message to the companies that BlackRock invests in. You know, we're talking about the largest mutual fund in the world. And, you know, he's insisting that companies express a purpose, that businesses organize around that, and that that includes stakeholder interests, planetary interests, employee equity, and things like that, as well as the financial bottom line. It only makes sense that if we're trying to transition as a planet to a more sustainable and equitable state, that uh, business be at the table and be leading in it, and that investors, including philanthropy and, and other institutional investors, work in that space. So happily, it's a growing space. We are seeing real progress now. But you know, it does start with that first conversation. And you know, I've spoken to a number of foundation boards one-on-one about how we've learned, what we've done. Uh, today, our direct impact portfolio is about 70 million, a little more than 10% of the overall endowment and growing. Um, we've built it carefully as a sort of model portfolio for other foundations to look at. So we've got a range of types of instruments in that portfolio, private equity, debt, and direct investment into funds of various kinds. We've also got some loan guarantees in place, uh, which are remarkably effective at uh, enabling capital to move into, uh, we've done some big real estate projects that way, providing a loan guarantee to a $25 million lead platinum office building here in uh, Montreal. And the other thing is, these investments are all performing very well. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say that the two mistakes we made are both mine. I directed us to turn a grant into an investment, and I wish I hadn't at the time. We wanted to try it out. It should have stayed a grant, frankly, because the organization that we supported that way, it was a huge amount. It was like $50,000, but we lost it. And you don't want to let the ego get in the way of good judgment. Sometimes happens. But it's a pretty exciting field. And there's a lot of talent that wants to move into this space. The other thing, it's like we've got a great young team here, uh, some great senior advisors on our investment committee now who are coming out of mainstream, they work in mainstream finance, but they're very interested in this space because they see that it's important. Uh, they're personally committed to it. And I think we're seeing a tremendous growth in this area. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it's funny enough, the, your very last point there, I mean, I, I'm coming from traditional finance as well. And I, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen when you come over from that side. I mean, it, I think maybe I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's this sort of implicit assumption that, you know, generating maximizing profit can't you know is mutually exclusive from doing something good and that even coming from like traditional like the public security side of the world like the private securities market is seen as the wild west and risky and inherently risky and and sure there's lack there's less um, information available less disclosure requirements but the range of investments range from very conservative to very aggressive on the private side as well as the public but there's a sort of the number of these things that are just sort of assumptions you make that are implicit that you kind of have to you know get your head around. That's not necessarily the case. Where was it ever written that you can't necessarily do something positive and, and profitable? Sure. We still do have a big gap between the granting economy and the scale of impact deals that we're able to do and the size of deal that, you know, we need to have to bring get the attention of pension funds, other institutional investors. We're not there yet. And so we're still scaffolding up. And it's another reason why the social finance fund is so important is that 
yes, it's important to have thriving community enterprises and a thriving social economy. But if we're talking about systems change and creating thousands of jobs for young people today and shifting the energy system and, and so on, um, we do need larger amounts of capital to work with and to come into the space. And we see, I think, the role here of the unconventional players, the early entrants into the field, the foundations and people like Joel Solomon and others is to create the field and start showing by doing that this can be profitable as well as impactful. And again, you choose your risk tolerance and invest that way. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here and the larger players in the space are beginning to realize it. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. So um, I do want to talk a lot about the social or spend at least some time on the social finance fund. But um, before we move off of McConnell, I'd love to chat just a little bit about your kind of focus on reconciliation. Um, I don't have a specific question off the top, but can you just talk a little bit about it, why it's important to you and how you're sort of tackling it? Thanks for the question. It's such an important one in Canada. Um, I think like most Canadians, we didn't realize what had been happening here over the last century uh, and more. You know, Canada started out on a very different footing. When Champlain came here and worked with Indigenous nations in, from the moment he arrived, there really was a time when he was building a partnership economy. The fur trade was built, co-built and governed and managed by Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, and it was working for a while. Um, for a variety of reasons, that wasn't the pattern that persisted. We became a much more colonial and colonized nation with uh, a lot now to take responsibility for. Uh, the residential school system, the forced hunger experiments, and so on and so on. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commission brought all of that uh, squarely forward and made us all aware of what we have to work with and why we have to pay attention to this. So like most foundations, McConnell has only become involved in this space over the last, for us, it's been about 50 ones, not the first, but one of the earlier ones. And now we cross the philanthropic sector of why this is important. So um, the work of Cindy Blackstock has pointed out the tremendous discrepancy in, in levels of health care to Indigenous kids on reserves and other Canadians. Uh, we've got a, you know, the metrics from the UN that show that you know, if Indigenous Canadians were a separate country. They rank about 63rd on the, on the well-being index. And a lot of that is the result of investment decisions and government policy decisions that were frankly, genocidal. That's the conclusion of our Supreme Court. So we got into this by, uh, first of all, supporting Cindy's work. Uh, she was a, a graduate of a program at McGill that we supported, and she made a pretty compelling case that there, were, there was a lot of work to be done across the Indigenous, non-Indigenous frontier. And it was, I think, our first grant to import her work. Um, today, it's a large portfolio with the Martin Organization on their education mandate, with Indigenous-led organizations. We now have Indigenous staff. A big part of this is about, in a sense, decolonizing our own viewpoint and our own uh, ways of making grants and investing. So we're increasingly focused on developing Indigenous partnerships, uh, supporting Indigenous leadership, young leadership, and larger organizations collaboratively and in a, in a respectful and humble way, because we're learning as we do this. But you know, it's an area of enormous 
need potential, and it's a pretty exciting area to say uh, some of the most impactful work we do is done with Indigenous partners and leadership. So whether it's working on the child welfare uh, reform in, in Manitoba with, with Winnipeg Boldness, a group of Indigenous women that is developing testable hypotheses for transforming that system, or whether it's with Aki Energy, an Indigenous-owned company that is uh, replacing diesel in remote communities with geothermal installations and spreading that model. There's just so much going on. Uh, we have a partnership with the Huron here in Quebec to create uh, housing loan funds that serve people living on reserves. They've got it up and running. They've done 400 of these things. They're, 98% of them are above water and, and paying their uh, standard 7% interest. But there's still great need in this space. And it's important that other investors and foundations join in this work with Indigenous partners. It's important that this work be led by Indigenous people. And really, I mean that, uh, putting the resources in place so that Indigenous people can make their decisions, but also adapting non-Indigenous organizations to be more effective partners. So working on reconciliation itself and making sure that we all understand where the needs are, how to work respectfully with Indigenous partners and so on. We were pleased to be part of supporting the first Indigenous law school at uh, University of Victoria with Van City and others. But you know, it's, it's a national project of such compelling dimensions that every Canadian, I think, has a role to play, uh, certainly in, in, in understanding where we've come from and why things are the way they are now and how we build a better society going forward. Thank you for that. That's really wonderful. I'm smiling through a lot of that. I, I'm embarrassingly late to awareness around reconciliation. I feel embarrassed and ashamed about not coming to sort of become more aware of it sooner. It was just sort of willful ignorance of it. And it does strike me as just both the right thing to do, the just thing to do. And again, I, I'm still, I'm a neophyte in this space, but from my the little bit of kind of awareness and understanding I have, it really feels a lot like there are a lot of indigenous values, cultures, practices, and that's a bucket statement because I'm sure that there's it's not a you know just one cohesive um, perfectly cohesive unit, but like there's a lot of commonalities between indigenous groups that their values are just like seem to be better, just more grounded, more you know, we could learn a lot from them and we could benefit a lot from truly by adopting some of their you know, sustainability practices, they're the way they interact with the environment. It just feels like we've, you know, there's a lot we could benefit from this. Never mind, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> um, we could learn from them a lot, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh, being able to speak with uh, cultures that have survived here for 10,000 years uh, with a rich cultural traditions and ways of organizing economies and land stewardship and so on, uh, not perfect. It's not not one perfect model, but there is uh, there's a lot to be gained from learning and sharing and co-creating and and really stepping back as well and letting Indigenous people lead on this work and making sure that they have access to the tools that they need to do that. Uh, decolonizing our own viewpoints is a big part of that. And I have to say, I appreciate your saying that you, you've come late to this. Uh, we all have, and it's important not to beat ourselves up too much about it. I mean. I have to be honest, I was, for a year or so, I was grieving about, I couldn't believe uh, some of the stuff that we had done and that we didn't talk about or that wasn't understood. And it's like, it just shattered my view of Canada and our history. It's like, whoa. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that that's 
something we have to pass through, but that there is, you know, something there to be gained on the other side of, you know, wringing our hands and, or you know, worse, and entering into a spirit of co-creation of a nation that is truly respectful of Indigenous values and listens and, and looks for respectful collaboration. So it's a national project of the first order. I have to say, I really appreciate what the Prime Minister has done in this space at, uh, and Indigenous leadership and sort of responding to that. Not perfect, but it feels like we're not going back. This is mm-hmm. now culturally, legally, politically, we're becoming a different and better country through this work. Yeah, that's one. I agree with uh, that, that sentiment. I, I'll give sort of a viewpoint. It's something that I personally wrestle with. I, I'd be curious for you if you have any thoughts, feedback on it. You've mentioned a couple of times the idea of sort of decolonizing wealth. And uh, it's something that I personally wrestled with a little bit. I'm part of a kind of a young philanthropist group through Toronto Foundation, the Vision 2020 program. And we a bunch of young philanthropists coming together and learning about local issues and then learning about good philanthropic practices, a wonderful, wonderful program. But I sort of wrestle with this idea that at the end of the day, it's a group of young, privileged professionals who have had a lot of advantages and opportunities that others haven't, who are getting to direct and control which causes get funded and how they get funded. And so my guess is that part of your answer and what I've sort of come to is one of the things I appreciate McConnell is this idea of involving communities and having community-led programs where it's not up for me to tell a community what to do with that money or those resources, but for them. But I sort of just wrestle with, am I sort of continuing to propagate this sort of system of, you know, imbalances? Well, that's a great question. I think, and actually we could put that question at the foot of all philanthropy is to say, well, who are we to make the decisions about what's funded and who takes the credit and what isn't funded and who gets ignored and what's more different and so on. And it is a, it's undoubtedly a position of privilege that we have to be pretty clear about and be held to account by ourselves, our boards, our peers, and by the people with whom, to whom we are granting. Uh, just mm-hmm. finding ways to rebalance those power relationships. I think at the source or at the center of some of the best philanthropy going on today, and it's not about sort of handing over the money and leaving the room. It's about giving the the power of discretion and discernment and choice and staying in the room to develop a relationship that's real and it's not based on power structures that are essentially uh, colonialist in nature. So with Winnipeg Boldness, for example, we found a way in the first meeting we had with the person who's now the the lead of that initiative. she said, frankly, if you're here to talk about how we can make decisions in this community and you'll put your money on the table so that we can decide how it's spent, then let's keep talking. But otherwise, frankly, we're wasting our time here. So wow, it's good for me good to for, hear. Yeah. And I think we made the right decision and stayed in the conversation. And today, you know, Winnipeg Boldness is generating solution after solution, or at least testable hypothesis series of radically transformed. Uh, child welfare that is, you know, highly destructive, a child welfare system that is um, corrosive of families, of communities, and proposing very different and actionable solutions. So the first social impact bond in Manitoba was launched a couple of weeks ago and will support the testing of an Indigenous doula um, approach. So providing vulnerable mothers with a, a coach, a coach through their pregnancy, birth, and afterwards 
weaving community connections, giving that young mom confidence and someone to turn to through the period of her pregnancy and, and afterwards. And we're going to, the model that is in place is one where an Indigenous organization, a network of Indigenous organizations, is going to have the funds to train, deploy, uh, learn, and adapt, and scale up a model for doing that at a level that is large enough that if it works, the government can fund at a higher level of scale. So that's a good example, I think, of how decolonizing our wealth can work, but also happens to be a good example of a social impact bond. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about social impact bonds and how they are slow and inefficient and corruptible. And, you know, this the point is made, and I think, you know, legitimately that they can be just a way for wealthy people to profit off, uh, you know, situations of poverty and dysfunction. But I think used well and with community voice and governance and real relevance, they can be a terrific tool in the social finance toolkit. Yeah, we had Nadine Pequeniza from the Invisible Heart documentary on, and we talked a little bit about that SIBS, a lot about SIBS. And, and yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, interestingly, even if the model proves in the long run that it's sort of not cost effective, that it's too complicated, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from it. There may be sort of iterations of it come out. We may learn some lessons and improve upon it. But as you say, I think there are probably context where it will be useful and valuable. It won't be a cure-all for all of our, there's no one silver bullet to any problem. So it's just a matter of us learning about how to use it in the right context and what are kind of best practices to make that as effective as possible. And, you know, including the communities, um, not allowing sort of pure profit-minded or entities to, and individuals to put off the backs of things we need to watch out for and be vigilant against. Right. I sort of say that I came from the traditional finance space and I made a very big sort of transition in my career, but I didn't transition to allow a lot of the bad habits from traditional finance to make its way into this space. That would defeat the, the entire purpose of, of moving. So I find myself very, very like just vigilant and trying to watch for those potentials. Yeah, no, it's important that we not allow that opportunity and that tool to be corrupted or misused. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to me just a little bit about, and I, we will get to the social finance fund. Um, Aki, you mentioned Aki Energy. I, I believe that Ravens Capital is involved with that. And so hmm. Jeff Sears, Sears Fund. I'd love to just, that sounded to me, I've only heard little bits about it. I'm still getting my head around it, but it sounded like a really interesting and innovative approach. Can, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Can you? Oh, I, I love talking about it. Although okay. really, I hope you get uh, Jeff and maybe Sean Loney or uh, Ian. Folks from, from Aki I'd, on the I'd show. I'd love to, yeah. I, I definitely will. It'll just be a matter of when I can fit sure. it in the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so the Aki initiative, it's Darcy, can't think of his last name, a wonderful indigenous leader, and Sean Loney, and some other folks who put that together. And it comes out of uh, a social enterprise center in Winnipeg, the Build Center. And so they incubate companies that hire people facing employment challenges and give them steady, good jobs on things like doing green retrofits to, uh, to housing, or in this case with Aki Energy, doing converting diesel-dependent uh, remote northern communities to geothermal or a mix of renewable power sources. So the model essentially is that a capital provider, in some cases it's been, in quite a few cases, it was Manitoba Hydro, who under their own charter will provide the upfront capital for an initiative that is going to lower utility costs and energy usage. 
So the capital is provided up front. Local people are hired and trained to do that retrofit or that conversion. And uh, they've done several million dollars worth of these things. Uh, these are jobs. They're good jobs, steady work, somewhat seasonal, but what isn't in the north. And the model does generate a significant reductions in, in greenhouse gas emissions. It lowers utility rates for communities. And is those rates, those savings are sufficient to pay back uh, the capital as provided up front. So it's a win, a triple win kind of situation. And along with Community Foundations of Canada, Raven and other partners, uh, we're involved, McConnell's involved in, in helping to scale that. Um, it's a little bit challenging to work on issues of national import in a provincial or Indigenous uh, reserve context. The administration at, at Indigenous services hasn't always been as responsive or nimble or agile or, or flexible to support this kind of work. So there's some work to be done there on the public sector side to bridge the environmental priority with the economic development priority with the, you know, the priorities of Indigenous services. But um, it's a proven model and it's ready to scale. We can look at a similar situation with food security in the north. And uh, again, with uh, Aki Food in this case, um, we're part of a pilot initiative that the Lawson Foundation is supporting in four northern Manitoba communities to address the diabetes epidemic. I don't think Canadians appreciate that there are communities in the north, indigenous communities in the main, of two to 10,000 people where almost 50% of the population has diabetes. Uh, this is a debilitating chronic illness that is entirely preventable, very difficult to manage, uh, to treat, very expensive to treat, and we're wasting money not investing in prevention up there. So we're happy to be part of this uh, small-scale experiment, again with Aki Foods, and looking forward to opportunities to scale that as well. But boy, you know, you look across uh, Canada and you see so many of these opportunities where on their own, a community cannot sort of lift up its own bootstraps. You can't say, well, we're 2,500 people here. and We've got, you know, 40% of our population has diabetes and we got to fly people south for treatments and we got trouble keeping a nurse, let alone a doctor in the community. Um, let's fix this. Uh, you have to come at it with larger tools and an effort to shift the system, which means shifting the freight subsidies for low-calorie food, creating... Uh, more locally grown food and supporting everything from greenhouses to sustainable fisheries to freezers to store hunt the results of uh, hunted meat all of these things create more local capacity to sustain a community in a healthy way reducing the incidence of chronic disease and paying off multiple dividends triple bottom line here and finding ways to invest in those kinds of solutions with communities as partners is, is, again, a real focus, we hope, of the Social Finance Fund. Great. So that's a great segue. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Well, first of all, it's a tremendous achievement that Canada has committed to doing a statement that said there would be a, first of all, a $50 million impact and readiness fund, a, a grant fund that would be dispersed over a couple of years and that would create capacity in, among community organizations and collaboratives of various types to be prepared to absorb and deploy capital. And then this creation of a $755 million capital fund, the social finance fund, we're talking now about repayable capital, that will be dispersed over 10 years and will 
in our view, and I'm speaking for McConnell and some of our partners here, help us to create a social finance marketplace, a solutions marketplace, if you will, where if we take the example that we were just speaking about with the Manitoba uh, communities and their diabetes issue, and, and that, you know, they're just one example of many, if we can direct capital to solving that problem, it does create opportunities for social enterprises to come in and raise food, distribute it, uh, so on, preserve it. Um, there's often a social enterprise complement or spin-off or support for a systems change effort. But I do want to highlight the potential for the Social Finance Fund to support social innovation at the scale necessary to be able to progress at the pace that the planet needs it and our communities need it and our country needs it. Uh, we want to make sure that the Social Finance Fund is supporting systems change uh, so that the, the social enterprise community and investors and participants can play their role. But I think we do have to be careful and purposeful and clear that the Social Finance Fund needs to support uh, systemic change as well as the supporting role and the, the leadership role that social enterprises can play. So, Stephen, you mentioned um, systems change. I think we've got a kind of wide uh, varying audience who, who listening and may not know what that term is. Can you talk about what that is? There is quite a bit of confusion around it. If we look of any delivery of any social system and call that the status quo, whether it's healthcare, um, the gap in early child development education in Canada, there's a number of places where the delta between what we're currently doing and what we could be doing involves uh, significant improvement in outcomes but requires investment of capital to get there. So that's outcomes finance. How do we finance that shift in a system, whether it's lowering the carbon emissions of buildings, increasing uh, job availability for recent graduates, improving the correction system, you name it. There is a place where community actors and partners, uh, imagineers, social scientists, economists, and so on, we've seen a proliferation of social labs in Canada that work on developing better solutions, better approaches to stock problem sort of rigidity. And that's where we need capital to be able to finance the changes that are testing of hypotheses, valuation of results, and scaling what works. So we're talking about um, outcomes finance or a solutions economy, from some perspectives, is the big economic play of our era. Uh, the next decade is one where we've got a lot of work to do to meet the sustainable development goals. A lot of capital is locked down in our current institutional arrangements and structures, and we have to open those up to improving outcomes. So there's a growing community globally and happily in Canada as well that is working on this stuff and where we're seeing the need for new partnerships and metrics that will inform our, our transition to an equitable, low-carbon economy. That's the big challenge. That's the system, the big system that we have to change. And there's a lot of work to be done in between here and where we need to be. A lot of jobs, uh, a lot of investment opportunities for cross-sectoral collaboration for that to happen. So that's great. There you go. Thank you. So maybe talk a little bit about then that connection, and I understand you probably don't have it all exactly mapped out, but even just high-level thoughts on how you translate, you know, eight hundred million dollars from the Canadian government to affecting 
these systems change and ultimately driving that impact towards the SDGs? So as the full economic statements made clear, the intent is to leverage that about three times at least. What that will do is it will enable the investments to be made and packaged. And let me just pull back one step. So we actually need intermediaries to operate in this space and to absorb capital, to use it, to deploy it across a particular geography or against a, an issue like homeless, some other problem in society. Um, who can use grant support to create the conditions for successful investments? We need to evaluate progress to attract new capital in. Those intermediaries are, are not there now, at least we don't have enough of them. So Rent is proposing to address that is through the $50 million Impact and Readiness Fund, $2 million, two-year $50 million grant fund designed to get the on issues like access to buildings by disabled people to supporting uh, energy efficiency in buildings to you name it. Around challenges like that, we've got a financial intermediary who can uh, accept and deploy. There's a great example in the U.S. called the Nonprofit Finance Fund, and uh, they were really helpful in, in the process where the committee that I was on was what the potential of a fund like this is. And the guy who came up from New York, David Baglavine, Anthony Baglavine rather, was explaining that you know, the down, a YMCA that deals with homeless people in New York can't get a bank loan to expand its services for homeless people because a bank would look at them and say, well, wait a minute, you've got 27 different sources of funding from different government programs, on and on and on. Whereas the Nonprofit Finance Fund understands how a homeless shelter works, what its variables are, what its operating variables are, and so on and can actually make a very good loan and support package to enable a homeless shelter to expand and adapt its services to changing needs. Community-linked intermediary that we need more of. That's what the $50 million will do. Beyond that, it's important to be able to leverage in larger amounts of capital. And there's a perception that, well, the banks have enough money and government has lots of money. We just need money to go into the community center and thank you, we'll keep that. But if we really want to solve uh, challenges at the scale and speed that we need to, we have to attract in larger funds. And there's a, a layer of social finance practitioners in Canada, and we're one of them, we know several others, where you know the deals that we do around things like home mortgage, uh, home microenterprise loan funds, a whole range of things that we see are there and are working can't get to the next level of scale without additional capital. Unfortunately, for pension funds and other institutional investors, these deals and these programs are well below the scale they would need to be able to invest successfully. So we want to bridge that gap with this fund and create some pooled funds that would attract public and private sector dollars to go to work on some of these challenges and where deal structures can be designed so that there are first loss provisions, loan guarantees, um, variable rates of return, and so on, so that we can deploy capital successfully, uh, appropriately, across these challenges and transform them, really, into solutions economies, so that the solutions that save the public sector money, the outcomes for people and community that create jobs, are achievable through the intelligent and strategic use of capital and human resources. So just to, for my own edification, um, 
the using this fund to sort of bridge that gap, maybe there's more, but there's sort of two central components there. One is sort of pooling um, investment opportunities that then allow this type of scale that a pension fund might enter in. Is that part of the equation? Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. One, one way to think about it. And then the other part being kind of finding ways to de-risk the investments with first loss capital. And that just for people who are listening, the idea is you're using grant capital essentially to, you know, if there's a loss on the investment to eat that loss before the investor ends up having to experience that loss. And if that helps bring down the risk of the investment, it makes it more attractive investment for the investor. And they're more willing to come to the table with larger amounts of money to pile in. Is that? Totally. You can actually structure these things in advance so that there's a kind of hybrid capital stack involved. So for the first 5 million, we're talking about a grant fund. And then the next 20 could be a low interest loan or loan guarantee or something of that nature of financing on concessionary terms. Uh, the next 25 might be in the form of an investment from a, a midsize, you know, could be a union pension fund or, you know, a Van City or something like that. And now we're, you know, we've got a $50 million structure here that is addressing some problem where the outcomes, in such a way that the outcomes are significantly better than were the case before the fund was acting in this space. And if we're talking about an issue like a dysfunctional child welfare system that's costing upwards of $500 million a year, um, it's possible to think about, you know, we've, we're very familiar with green bonds. Well, we could be thinking about systems change bonds where the outcomes are pretty assured because the model has been tested. There's a, a government involved. There's community support. There's financial rigor and evaluation in place. So let's finance the shift. And, you know, this, that's just one example, but you could apply that to transitioning people out of the oil sector uh, into something like uh, renewable energy or remediating uh, the thousands of oil wells that have to be, uh, I don't think remediation is the right word, but there's a big job in Alberta to clean up the oil wells that have been closed, but have to be remediated. I think that's maybe the right word. Uh, so there's that, it's that kind of finance. It's putting finance in place to solve big problems and where there's a role to play, a role for community and for sort of social R&D to develop the best solutions. Hmm. Great. So what type of time frame is this all sort of going to play out? Like when would you expect the first investments and or granting to be done? Well, as soon as possible, from my perspective. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this is in the hands of the government, and I think uh, you know we're we'll looking for signals in the March budget as to uh, how they're proposing to proceed. Um, there's a number of us in the community sector, in the social finance, impact investing sector, that are talking about how we can collaborate to move this forward on both the community front and, and the sort of local economies piece, which is really really important. I mean, living in Atlantic Canada or the north, and there isn't a lot of this kind of capital available, and there's a lot of need there, while also looking at the opportunity to work at a cross-regional or thematic level on some of our biggest challenges. So that we're kind of getting ready on the community side and the, and the impact investing side for however the government wants to deploy this. We hope that the $50 million is being dispersed, and the plan was $25 million a year for two years. We want that to be well-designed so that it is actually uh, helping to inform and shape the the market building that uh, is necessary before the seven hundred and fifty five million is available and invested, so that means you know capital for intermediaries for 
capacity building in communities and regions, building the coalitions that can come up with business models and so on to absorb and deploy capital well. And then, you know, I would hope that by this time next year, if not too much later, um, investment capital is starting to flow as well. Great. And who's deciding and structuring all of this and making decisions about where and how capital is deployed? No, no, I, I don't think it has. I mean, I, I think uh, this is finance and ESDC, I think would be the, the key discussants in that process. So we're looking for signals they want to move. The budget, as I said, will hopefully contain some indication of timelines and direction. But in the meantime, we're not waiting on the community side. Alliances and products that we would be proposing be considered in any way that this capital be deployed. We want to show that we're committed to it and that we can co-design with partners in the community and across the country in various sectors, uh, outstanding initiatives. And you know, this is really going to help, we think, help Canada some of its pressing challenges. And it puts us in the company of that handful of other countries that have launched this kind of fund and from whom I, I think we'll be learning in touch with them now, uh, Japan, the UK, uh, South Korea have funds like this, the EU has one. And we want to look at what they've learned from their efforts to launch this kind of fund and not repeat their mistakes, but it takes into account uh, what they've learned and how they're functioning. Great. Being mindful of time, so I want to be careful about which questions I, I ask here because I've got a lot still. Talk a little bit about impact measurement. Um, and this is something I think a lot of organizations and us in this space wrestle with, um, especially when you're sort of making investments across sectors and communities and just the challenge of then the resources that have to kind of go into doing that sort of methodically and rigorously. Do you have, do you have thoughts just at a high level on that challenge? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, evaluation of outcomes is, is really important. And, you know, there's an increasingly sophisticated set of things. Uh, one of them is presented to us by the sustainable development goals. I and mean, how are we doing as a country or as a sector or as a, a region on addressing a particular uh, SDG. But I think more than that, we're looking at the kind of metrics that track financial performance as well as social and or environmental impact, both at the first level in terms of you know this many houses were built and this many people were housed, as well as these this many more jobs were created. Uh, is going to educational performance is going to increase because these kids who are formerly in insecure or overcrowded housing are now able to perform better at school because they've got a place to study and the heat's always on and so on. I mean, there's just so many ways to track social impact, but there is a, an increasingly sophisticated set of metrics or tools for measuring that kind of impact. So we're only part of this conversation, but you know we have a, an ongoing effort with um, a fellow that we've appointed to work on this uh, with us and with uh, the Privy Council Office and some other partners to develop some kind of three-dimensional impact metrics that we can apply complex situations where not losing sight of the financial really describe impacts in their full terms. And there's some very, very smart people working on this, uh, tech firms and so on. So stay tuned because I think we're entering an era where this kind of impact is going to become more important at driving the market and helping us to direct capital to a need and direct capacity building. Frankly, the community sector and many governments are still uh, learning how to do this. But it's an opportunity, I think, to raise our game in the sector as we take advantage of this opportunity to deploy much larger amounts of capital in 
That's great. I guess two last questions on the social finance fund. One, it would be, are there sort of very big outstanding questions that you're most keen to sort of have answered uh, sooner than later? Is there anything really pressing that you're hoping to get an answer to ASAP aside from what you've already mentioned? I do think that, you know, one of the critical uh, policy issues here is, is how to balance and successfully position the need for capital to flow into communities across the country for to meet some immediate needs and opportunities, while also ensuring that we're able to leverage the fund overall to grow it and to attract in or crowd in other forms of capital early. And uh, in doing that, to ensure that we've got some you know, ways and capital to apply to the larger issues that can't be solved at the community level, but that where there is a community need, that we roll that up and express that as a as sort of a system financing opportunity uh, and so on. So I think I really am keen that we and others uh, participate in the conversation about leveraging the 750 and creating, whether it's uh, system finance bonds, like the green bond movement that was you know, brand new 10 years ago, but the capital flows that have to happen to enable us to transition fairly rapidly, uh, that question is still not answered. And I think has to be, from McConnell's perspective, as a national funder in this country, working on reconciliation and environmental issues and so on, uh, we don't want to miss this opportunity for Canada to work at that level. Yeah, great. On the issue of impact and sort of tying back to you know this issue a little bit is to some degree there's this sort of trade off and I know that in the industry there's a lot of people go to great lengths and I think you've pointed out on your foundation website that you know making an impact investment doesn't necessarily require a trade off of financial return and I think that's exactly right on the other hand sometimes it does so I think you're kind of we're trying to battle this perception that. I think many of my colleagues in the traditional finance space says, which is like, oh, of course, you're going to sacrifice return if you do anything positive and say, hey, no, no, it's not necessarily true. On the flip side, I think we can take that too far sometimes in the impact investment community and say, no, you don't ever have to sacrifice any return for impact. And I think, in my view, there are cases where you do. Sometimes you just, it's too expensive. It's too big a challenge. There's not enough return potential. And we need concessionary capital. We need grant capital. We need to be able to accept below market rates of return, I suspect you'd agree with this. So how do you balance then the, when you've got $800 million and you're trying to get this sort of, this ongoing um, market for social finance fund to continually deliver impact, how do you sort of balance the impact versus the financial sustainability? Well, there's a, in the UK, big society capital uh, baked into its model that it would uh, generate a 4% return overall on its entire portfolio. Hmm. Uh, I don't think we want to go there. I think there are times when you have to use concessionary instruments to catalyze market activity. And frankly, if, as we were talking a moment ago about performance metrics, um, in some cases, so what if you lose 10% of your money, but you've generated hmm. a model that's scalable that will save billions and improve outcomes for people who are otherwise going to be facing uh, you know, a life of a chronic disease. I mean, there's just other ways to measure outcome or impact. If we're look, talking strictly financial, then you, know, you can make investments based on return profiles or anticipated profiles. And people tend to think of the social sector as a big risk. Well, actually, it's not. There's huge amounts of money that are needed and are invested and further needed in the affordable housing sector. And guess what? 
people living in affordable housing don't default on their mortgages. They fight like hell to keep mm -hmm. them alive and above water. And there's lots of places where capital can be deployed into the social sector uh, with steady and reasonable rates of return. But it isn't a place to make a killing. This is about you know, financing our collective well-being, after all. And so I think investors do have to look at this as you know, a place to invest in our collective future, as well as their current or next quarter's back. So all that said, I think we've invested in some private equity firms uh, that have internal rates of return in the approaching 20%. And that's fine. Uh, those are typically clean tech companies. So that's one place where more capital is needed. And, but there are other places where steady returns on a mortgage fund are, in this, pretty good things to have in your portfolio. But giving them a social purpose and focus uh, just adds these other benefits. I don't think any reasonable investor would want to walk from you know, returns of 4 5 6 7% in, in this kind of market. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, just last question, because we're running out of time here. But um, if you're going to sort of self-reflect on our industry, I think sometimes there's a, I'm guilty of this. I'll just maybe talk about myself. Sometimes we sort of pat ourselves on the back a little bit um, about all the good that we're doing and how wonderful this all is. And I think that it, you know, I think it's wonderful. That's why I'm here. But if you were going to sort of take a critical lens to our you know, self-reflection on our industry, what areas of improvement are there? What areas of concern do you see? You know, the people who have led the work to date are to be congratulated. And, you know, we, you know, we see ourselves as one of them. I guess if there were a criticism or a challenge to put before us, it would be around this question of sure that community interests, and I mean smaller and remote communities and so on, are addressed. And with those, you know, capital is provided to those people and those issues and institutions. While we build the solutions finance or social finance marketplace, which is the much larger one, we can't ignore one at the expense of the other. They, we need to find ways to access that gap. And not everybody can do everything, but I do think we have to push harder in both directions to ensure that vulnerable, marginalized people and communities are work and that we scale it up to a, the level that it needs to be to make progress at the pace that we need it, the scale that we need it to address our, our largest and most compelling, our most pressing challenges. Wonderful. So, Thank you. Okay. That's great. Well, Thank listen, you. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Um, I'd love to, you know, down the road when we've got more um, information come out and we're further along this path, I'd love to have you back on sometime. We can get a, give an update if you're willing, but um, I really appreciate you taking the time, Stephen. Yeah, it's an exciting time. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today and, and right now because uh, it does feel like we're at an inflection point in this whole uh, market in Canada and globally. So I'm looking forward to talking to you again and to uh, hearing from some of your listeners as they come back with questions or ideas and things that they want to do. Because this really is, I think, something that we're putting in place for the next generation of people coming into the industry and into careers, coming out of university. It means a lot more to them, to you, than it does to old guys like me. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> well, thank you again, Stephen. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, David. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, 
Play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.